Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Are you with me? Well, we see it all the time. We hop in the car and we, we see that, that little sign, that little, those words on the edge of the side mirror over there, and, and we realize those words are there for a reason. The objects in the mirror are closer than they appear because sometimes in the moments of life, we're surrounded by things and we don't always realize what's there. I want you to know this morning no matter how you feel coming into this place, that God is closer to you than you can imagine. He he is close to you. He desires more in you. He desires more in relationship with you. And he is closer than you may think he is. That's kind of where we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 3. If you have your Bible or if you have your scripture journal, if you've been working through that with us and making some notes, uh, just kind of begin to turn there. And as you do, I just want to kind of press into this idea for a moment um, that, that really things are closer than, than sometimes we realize. Uh, sometimes, at least in my life, I've discovered the closer I get to something, the bigger it becomes. Uh, Growing up in the Chicago area, I remember driving along the Dan Ryan Expressway into downtown Chicago, and you you would see the Sears Tower. Some people wrongly call it the Willis Tower now. It will forever be the Sears Tower uh, to a native, and the Sears Tower is 108 stories tall. And you see it from way off in the distance, and and the closer you get to downtown, the bigger it becomes. And then when you get downtown, you're on the south side of the river and you're walking through the financial district and you can walk a couple blocks up to the, to the base of the Sears Tower and just stand there and go, wow, that's big. But, but my distance from it and how big it may or may not seem doesn't change because it is as big as it is. What changes is my proximity to it. Uh, I've been in Alaska, and what a, what a beautiful state. Uh, what a huge state. Um, but off in the distance, you can see Mount Denali rising 20,000 plus feet above sea level. And you can see it from so far away. And as you drive, and you just keep driving, you keep driving, and it keeps getting bigger, and it keeps getting bigger, and it keeps getting bigger. Because the closer you are in proximity to something, the bigger it becomes, right? You can stand off a a long distance and you see this stuff on social media all the time and people are like holding the Eiffel Tower in their hand, right? It's just this little play on proximity and distance and or they're they're holding, right, the Empire State Building. Hey, look, the, the Empire State Building. Sometimes that's the way we are in our relationship with God. Because the closer you are in proximity to God, the bigger he is. If you have a big view of God, guess what? Your vision, your mission, and your impact is going to be big. Yet, if you have a little view of God, because you're not in close proximity to him, and you see him as small or distant or impersonal, guess what? You're going to have a little vision. You're going to have a little mission. You're going to have a little impact. 
The same is true as we think about our relationship with Christ. And, and, and if you walk away with nothing this morning, hang on to this, would you? Your life in Jesus will never outperform your view of him. Your life, your ministry, your mission in Jesus Christ will never outperform your view of him how you perceive him, where you are in proximity to him. Your view of him is ultimately determined by your proximity to him. If you walk close with Jesus and he's close, guess what? He's big. But as we walk away and, and put him in the distance, he becomes to seem smaller. And that's, I think, where we find ourselves in Ephesians 3. Jesus was concerned about this idea of really understanding who he was because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, beginning in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, Jesus wants us to get this right. Paul, as he presses into Ephesians 3, he wants us to get this right because it changes our perspective on our mission and our vision. If we don't, we will accept his help, but we'll reject his authority. And I think that's where much of the church is today. Uh, we want the help of Jesus, but we don't want to submit and surrender to his authority. So we keep Jesus at a distance and we don't allow him to impact every aspect of our life. And yet when we walk in close proximity to Jesus, he gets huge. And he begins to impact everything. It's easier, it seems like it's easier, but it's really not, to stay distant from Christ and not allow him to get into every single area of our life. But if we, if we stay that distant, there's frustration, there's anxiety. We continue to deal with the same sin over and over and over, yet when we turn and move in close proximity with Christ, he begins to change everything. See, the bigger we view God, it begins to change our perspective on, on every aspect of life. Everything that we do is now changed because we have a different perspective of Christ. The more we experience his love, the more we experience his grace, the more we grow in his character, in the knowledge of who he is, it changes us. It changes our view of life. It changes the view of my circumstances in life. Ultimately, it changes how I view my church and how I view my relationship with my church. And it changes the ministry that I have, realizing that every place I put my feet becomes a mission field to Jesus Christ. So here, Paul begins to tell the Ephesians that they've not only been revealed the mystery of God, but uh, as Pastor Scott unpacked last week, we've been invited into the ministry of Christ and that it's huge. How can we do this? Well, uh, we have to change our perspective on Christ. We have to get in close proximity to him um, because the ministry of the gospel is either going to be a big thing for us or it's just going to be a little thing. Uh, we're either going to jump in with both feet and go headlong straight into the gospel, realizing this is a huge task given to us by a huge God, or we simply make it a trivial thing that we may or may not get to. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I struggle going, Jesus, I'm upset that I only have one life to give you. 
because it's not enough. If I spend every moment of every day serving you and leading people to the kingdom, God, it is not enough because the, the kingdom and the mystery of the gospel is so huge. And the closer I draw in proximity to Christ, I realize he's invited me into something that's spectacular. And I regret that I have but one life to give for Jesus Christ. And I don't want to waste a minute of it. What about you? I don't want to waste a moment because our view and our perspective changes as I walk in relationship with Christ, as I've grown in my relationship with Christ, he, he changes me. He changes the way I, I look at my world. He changes the way I interact with others. He changes the way I view my circumstances because now I begin to view them from the perspective of a God who loves me and is never going to let me go. So up to this point, as, as we've been working through the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are all about this vertical relationship between us and God. It's been spectacular, hasn't it? We've been adopted. We've been forgiven. We've been predestined. We've been chosen. We've been extended grace by, you know, uh, through faith, by grace, we, we've come to know Jesus Christ. We've become a child of God. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's invited us into the mission. And it's all about my vertical relationship with God. But after he prays for the Ephesian church and he prays for us, Paul then shifts from the vertical to the horizontal because based on all these things that we've discovered, he says, now guess what? This changes the way you live in relationship with other people. And we're gonna press into that for the next few weeks. But I wanna look at this prayer that Paul finishes up with. Because he closes this little portion of his letter with a little bit of a transition. It's kind of unique for him to sort of bring closure to the letter and then make this transition. So let's take a closer look because it's a prayer. And, and if you simply have been reading it this week, if you're following along in our small group study guide and you're reading the passage ahead, you could have read this prayer and completely missed all the depth that's here. Uh, because it seems simple, and yet it's incredibly profound. So I want to take a look at it, and what I want you to see is that Paul's close proximity to Jesus Christ is evident. First and foremost, I want you to see it's evident in his consistency in life. It's evident in his consistency in life. Look at your Bible, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. He simply says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. We just have to stop right there. <laughs> we have to unpack this because there's so much to that, to, to really understand what he's saying. Uh, the new King James uh, puts it this way. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's, he's the eternal God. He is Father God, but he is Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from the, whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You see, Paul's perspective of God is a big God. He is father of all created things. He is father of the heavens and the earth. Everything that is named is, is because of him. The New Living Translation says, when I think of all of this, in other words, everything that I've shared with you up to this point, when I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. Somebody say amen. amen. Paul's perspective is huge at this point. But I want you to see, and, and what is so neat about what Paul is, is saying to the Ephesian church, and, and I want to bring a, a storyline into it because where Paul left off with the Ephesian church takes place back in the book of Acts chapter 20. Paul is, is 
sailing. He's on a missionary journey, and, and Acts chapter 20 tells us that he sailed past Ephesus because he didn't want to stop in Asia and spend a bunch of time. He was trying to get Jerusalem, and he wanted to be there in time for the Pentecost. And so, uh, Acts chapter 20, if you have a Bible, you can flip back and you can look at it. I love what he says, because in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, for 22 verses, uh, it says that Paul called the Ephesian elders to come to him. So, he didn't stop in Ephesus, but when he got to Miletus, he, he called the Ephesian elders and, and he said, come to me. I want to teach you. I want to instruct you. I want to spend time with you. And so here's the Ephesian elders sitting in Miletus with Paul, and for 22 verses, from Acts chapter 20, verse 17, down through the close of the chapter, Paul is instructing them. He's challenging them. He's encouraging them. He's pushing them. And in, in verse 36, I love what it says, because it simply says, after he said all of this, he knelt down and prayed. He knelt down and prayed. Here he is with the Ephesian elders. It says he knelt down and he prayed. There was a great deal of weeping by everyone. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that he would never see his face again. Then they escorted him to the ship and he sailed on to Kos from there. Now, I want you to think about the consistency of Paul's life in the imagery of this moment as, as the Ephesian elders and the church is gathered reading this letter from Paul. Many, many of them who were present remembered this moment with Paul. For this reason, I bow my knees and I pray for you. Think about that for a moment. For, for some of these elders that were there, they go, I remember the last time I saw Paul. Knowing it was going to be the last time I would ever see him on this earth, that one day we'll be reunited in heaven. But I remember, this is the consistency of Paul's life. When they thought of Paul, what did they think of? They thought of his deep investment in the gospel in their lives. Let me ask you a question. When people think of you, what do they think of? Do they see the consistency of your life walking with Jesus? Are you the same person at work that you are on Sunday mornings? Are you the same person at home that you are on Sundays? When you go to work? When you post on social media? Is there a consistency to your life that points people to Jesus Christ? I can't solve your problems, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to step in your life and I'm going to pray with you. Let's talk about consistency of life because that's, that is to me what resonates before we even get to his prayer. What resonates to me is the consistency of Paul's life to say, this is what I do. This is what I do. I'm going to step in your life. I'm going to pray for you. I can't be with you right now, but I'm going to pray for you. And you know what? They knew it. Maybe somebody has said something to you in church one time like, hey, man, I'll pray for you. And you walk away going, Really? Are you really going to do that? What if we just stopped instead of, instead of saying, hey, I, I want to pray for you this week, but in case I forget, just being real honest, let me just pray for you right now. Let me just pray for you right now. You hear something about going, something going on in someone's life, say, hey, you know what? D don't call and say, can I come over and pray with you? Just get in your car and go pray with them. Point them to Jesus Christ. Don't step into their life trying to fix them. Just, just pray with them. Be consistent in your life. You know what I see in Paul's life? I see a legacy. 
From generation to generation to generation, this is what he told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. Timothy, the things you've heard me say and trust to reliable men who will in turn be able to teach others at least four generations. But, but the implied impact goes on for generation after generation after generation. What's your spiritual impact? What's your spiritual legacy? Who are you leading to Christ? Who are you pointing to Christ? Who are you investing in with a consistency in your life that you know will live beyond your lifetime? One of the greatest detriments to the, to the church of Jesus today is that we don't have a spiritual legacy. Christians die with the, with the assurance that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but there's no spiritual impact. There's no spiritual legacy because we're not living a consistent life that's pointing people to Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are going, okay, Pastor Dave, you're kind of past preaching, you're into meddling, so let's move on. So I want you to see the consistency in his life. Second thing I want you to see is the comprehensive prayer that he prays. The comprehensive prayer from 16 down through 19, Paul prays, prays an incredibly comprehensive prayer that if we simply read it and, and don't dive into it, we miss a lot of what he talks about. Uh, there's four critical things I think that Paul prays for in this text that I just want to bring out. And so those four points under comprehensive prayer, if you're filling in your notes, are simply quotes from Scripture, four things that Paul prays for that are, that are four dimensions of human need. I think it's incredible because he presses into the psychological aspect of who we are, the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual aspect of who we are. Paul's never praying for their physical needs. I love this. He's not praying that, hey, I hope that you're doing well, and I hope that all your, your worries, you know, and all your, your physical ailments are gone. No, he's, he's pressing into the deeper issues of human need, realizing that everything else that's happening, God has a plan and a purpose, and he's going to use it for his good, his good and, and his glory. So, so the first thing I want you to see is he says, I pray that you be strengthened with power through his spirit. Look at, look at verse 16. So that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Uh, what is Paul praying for? Paul is praying that they will not lose their inner motivation, that they will not be discouraged by the circumstances of life, specifically his circumstances. If we just jump back up in verse 13, Paul had just said, he said, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And see, Paul is saying, look, discouragement happens in life. Difficulties happen in life. Regardless of what all the TV preachers tell you, God's desire is not that you live your best life now. Okay. There is no promise in Scripture that when you give your life to Jesus, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and all your problems are going to go away. What he does promise you is that he's going to fill you with the presence of his spirit. He's going to give you hope that goes beyond this lifetime into all eternity. You spend eternity with him in heaven. But what he does promise, actually in Scripture, it is promised that in this world you will have trouble. You will have hardship. You will have difficulties. You will have sorrow. And Paul is saying, I, I pray that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I pray that, that you will not lose heart, that you be strengthened with power through His Spirit. 
You see, there's a sense of confidence that comes to a believer, not based in our flesh, which is our sin nature, but knowing that the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in the life of a believer. We walk with a sense of confidence. We walk with a sense of assurance uh, that the Spirit is dwelling in us. And as we walk in close proximity with Christ, letting Him shape our attitudes, letting Him shape our values, letting Him shape all of our choices, our decisions, our actions, the more we experience his power. You see, to be filled with the Holy Spirit that he talks about, and he comes back in Ephesians 5 and talks about this, is simply to be directed and controlled. And he says, I pray that you are filled with the power through his Spirit. And there's a sense of confidence that, that comes as we are simply strengthened through the Spirit. But then he says, in verse 17, look what he says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love. If you have your little scripture journal, just like I did, would you just circle rooted and grounded? Those are key to what Paul is praying for you. Uh, to be rooted is an agricultural term, something we're all very familiar with. If, if, if a tree or a plant has strong roots, no matter what's going on upstairs, right? All the storms and everything that's going on, when you're rooted, you have a strong foundation. Grounded actually comes, it's a, it's a construction term. It's like a, a firm, solid foundation. What are you rooting and grounding your life in? You know, your 401k, your job, your house, the economy, government, or Paul is saying, look, I want you to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Like a building resting on a firm foundation when we're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, we can't be shaken. We, we live in a culture right now where even the church is being shaken. Oh my gosh, I'm so concerned about the world. Paul is going, look, God is sovereign. He's in control. I only pray that you are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Because this world is not our home. We've already looked at that in this letter. This world is not our home. We're strangers. We're aliens. We're not going to be here forever. Praise God, I am not here forever. That I have a home in eternity uh, with Christ to live in his presence forever. But during this time, guess what? Problems come, difficulties come, hardships come, struggles come. And he says, I pray that you are rooted and grounded in the love of God. And as we learn to rest upon his unconditional love, that's what he's talking about, uh, we, we find ourselves emotionally balanced and stable. We're not wavering to and fro with every situation that goes on in this world. Why? Because we're rooted and we're grounded. And so when Paul here uses the word love, it's the word agape. And it's an unconditional love, but it's not primarily referring to how we feel about somebody or something. See, unconditional love is not purely an emotion. There's emotion with it, but, but it's really a, an, a, an absolute love. It's, it's a love that goes beyond my feelings and beyond my emotions. See, see the, the truth of God's love is not whether I feel loved. That has nothing to do with it. Rather, actually understanding that I am loved. Uh, we just sang about it. God is so good. Whether I think God is good or not doesn't change the fact that God is good. 
God loves me, and whether I feel this morning like God loves me or not doesn't change the truth that God loves me. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of uh, officiating the wedding of my youngest son. And as I interacted with Matthew and Katie and, you know, before they got married and then even during their ceremony, I reminded them that love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. It's a decision of the will to love someone. But, but God is not this anti-happy God, right? He, he wants us to, happy, to be happy. He wants us to experience happiness and joy. But even if I'm not experiencing happiness and joy, it doesn't change whether God loves me. I don't know about you guys, but in my home and in my marriage, I promise you there are times my wife doesn't like me. Come on, anybody else? There are times my wife doesn't like me, but you know what? She loves me. Because love is not a feeling, it's a choice. And this idea of agape love, unconditional love, one commentator defines agape kind of unconditional love as seeking the highest good in the one loved. And because Leslie loves me with an unconditional love like God loves me with an unconditional love, she has the ability to speak truth into my life even if she doesn't like me in the moment. Guys, that's what love is. And, and so this is a, a love that's lived out in relationship with other people. Nothing helps us understand this more than being a parent. Man, my kids are all grown and gone, and now they're all married. Praise Lord. And I remember those days, and I watch some of you parents around campus, and I go, wow, that's exhausting. Parenting is exhausting, you know? I remember having conversations with my kids when they were little, and honestly, and some of you have probably done this, I remember getting down and looking at my kids in the eyes and go, I know you don't like me right now, and I am okay with that. I'm okay with that. I, I understand that you don't like me in this moment because I'm not giving you everything that you want. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to understand that God's command is for you to love me. Love me and trust me because I want what's best for you in the long haul. And I've had those conversations. I'm less concerned that you're happy in a month and I'm more concerned that you're stable in 20 years. And sometimes God takes you and I through that journey. And sometimes, I don't know about you guys, you ever had that moment, it's like, I'm not even sure God loves me anymore. I'm not even sure God knows I exist anymore. Listen, I want you to know, if you're in one of those moments today, God knows exactly where you are. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. You stay in close proximity with Jesus because even if you don't feel loved, I want you to know how loved you really are. Paul knew that when these believers are rooted and grounded in love, they will be able to handle all the emotional ups and downs. You just have to trust the process. Trust the process. Good times, bad times, you trust the process. I've dealt with so many young couples who are like, yeah, we, we just fell out of love. I said, no, you chose not to love one another. Because see, the problem is that one half of the vows are easier than the other half. For good, for bad, for rich or for poor. One of those is easier. But see, the consistency of our unconditional love that God extends to us and we begin to extend to one another goes through the good times and the bad times. And sometimes you just have to step back and you have to trust the process. 
But then, then Paul goes on, and the third thing that he prays for is that they would know, and if you're filling in your, your outline, put in the word comprehend. That's important to understand, to know or to comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Verse 18 says that, that you may have strength to comprehend, circle that, circle that in, in, your, in your Bible, to comprehend with all the saints what is, and then circle these four words. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you hear what Paul is praying? I pray that you know the unknowable. <laughs> I pray that you will know the unknowable. Uh, when, when we break this down, it's absolutely fascinating because the love that he mentions in verse 17 is, is the love that's lived out in relationship. It's lived out in human relationship. The love that Paul is speaking to here so specifically refers to, the, to God's love toward us. God's love toward us, that I would begin to know the love that is unknowable. It, it surpasses knowledge. You know what just, you know what just happened? A preacher ran out of words. You ever pray for that when you're coming to church? Lord Jesus, I just pray the preacher runs out of words today. And he just goes and sits down. It's almost like he came to this point of going, I don't even know what to say about this. Have a good day, everybody. So, so what he does, he runs, he, he runs out of words, and so he kind of runs out of even the images, and so he gives us this, this perspective that to me, it reminds me of being in school. I don't know about anybody else, but I'm sure it still happens in the halls of every school to this day that a student is walking to a class and they pray this magic prayer. Lord Jesus, please give me the wisdom of everything that I've never read. Please give me the answers to questions that I don't even know yet exist. That Lord Jesus, as I sit down and I take that test, that I would be filled with wisdom and understanding. And that above all, that I would get a passing grade and get out of here. Am I, am I the only one that used to pray those prayers in school? Don't tell me that we don't have prayer in school anymore, because as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in school. But what Paul is saying, he uses this spatial image to convey the inexpressible, incomprehensible nature of God. He, he says, I want you to know the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, these immeasurable components. And if we were to break this down, breadth is, is side to side. The length is end to end. The, the height is the base to the very top. And the depth is if you go from the top as low as you can possibly go into the foundations and the structure as deep as you can possibly go. Paul is saying, look, I want you to understand the, the boundless love of Christ in every direction like an infinite universe who's, uh, who, that, that space can't even measure. He goes, I want you to know that love. And I go, wow, that's a lot. He's saying, look, Dave, as you grow and as believers grow deeper in their knowledge of God, he says, I want you to, to know uh, this God whose greatness can never be fully grasped. Uh, Dave, as you grow in your relationship with Christ and go deeper and stay in close proximity, I want you to know this God whose love can never be fully understand. I, I want you to know this God whose glory can never be fully experienced. 
See, Paul is saying this is not simply a head knowledge. Some of you are going to walk out of here and go, yeah, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I know God. And Paul is saying, I want you to know so much more. There's so much more. I don't know about you, but as I've learned to walk in relationship with Christ and, and do everything I can daily to stay in close proximity, I come to the place that as I dive into the word of God, I go, wow, I never realized how much I don't know. And about the time I think I'm learning something more, I realize I can't believe how much more there is that I have yet to experience and to understand. That is my prayer for you this morning, that you would know the knowledge, that uh, the love of God that surpasses our, our, our knowledge. Fourth thing that he prays, I love this. He says, I pray that you be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at verse 19. And that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I look at this and I go, wow, Paul just keeps raising the bar. <laughs> You cleared that one, let's raise the bar. You cleared that one, let's raise the bar. He's, he's raising the bar. Well, you know what he's saying to us? He's saying, I want you not only to know unconditional love, I also want you to know unknowable knowledge. Now he says, I want you to be filled with an infinite God. There goes the bar. It just keeps getting moved up. Let's raise the bar, church. Let's seek to be filled with the fullness of God. You see, clearly as human beings, we cannot contain the infinite God. Matter of fact, when we go back to the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, as Solomon built this temple in dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ and he prayed, 2 Chronicles chapter 6 verse 18, here's one of the things that Solomon prays. He says, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Solomon is saying even the universe cannot contain the glory and splendor of God, let alone this giant temple that I built. And here's Paul saying, Dave, I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. What is he saying? What is he saying? And as I pressed into this passage uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, I remembered as a, as a young boy, I was probably about 12, 13 years old, my great-grandfather passed away. He was 99 years old. And uh, my dad was executor to his estate. He was a neat guy, never been to a doctor a day in his life till he fell out of a tree and broke his hip. And uh, his son made him go to the doctor. He got admitted to the hospital. He had never been in a hospital. Got pneumonia and he died. Um, but over the course of months, I remember going through all my great-grandfather's possessions um, which were, you know, meager and uh, just boxes everywhere. And, and I remember coming across a jar. This is not the jar, but it was about this size. It was just a little bottle. And uh, I mean, he had all kinds of weird little knickknacks and stuff. So it was not a surprise to me to find this jar and it had sand in it. It was just a little jar of sand. It had a cork in the top. On there, there was a little label that he stuck on there. It said, sand from the Pacific Ocean. Now, he's a Midwestern guy. 
you know, lived just north of Chicago. So somewhere in his life, and it had a date, I think it said like 1909 or something like that. Um, so somewhere along the line, old Glenn had been to the West Coast and he'd been to the Pacific Ocean and he thought, well, I'd like to take some of this home. So he took a little bottle and he filled it and it was full and it had a little cork in the end, but it was, it was full. I thought about that image this week because I thought there's no way you could take all the sand from the Pacific Ocean and contain it. But for that little container, it was full. It had all the essence and the fullness of the Pacific. And it was full. But it, there's no way it could contain all of it. And I started thinking, Dave, that, that's my relationship with God. I am a tiny vessel. I'm a tiny container. And there's no way that I can contain all of the fullness and all of the nature of God. But you know what I can do? I can say, God, fill me until there's no room left. Fill me. Whatever that means, whatever that, that looks like, Lord Jesus, I know you are an infinite God. Paul is saying, I want you to be filled with the fullness of God. The, the fullness, all of his nature, all of his character, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, all of his mercy, all of his grace, all of his love bestowed upon me to give to others. Lord, fill me with your fullness. Fill this little meager container so that I am overflowing. I can't contain all of you. <laughs> no way. The, the universe can't contain you. But God, I want you to fill me. That's Paul's prayer for you. That's Paul's prayer for the, the church in, in Ephesus. Fill me. Peter understood this. The apostle Peter that walked with Jesus understood this because in 2 Peter chapter 1, look what Peter says. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, get this, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter says, you and I have been invited to be partakers of the divine nature. We don't become God. We don't become little gods. We simply contain the divine nature of God himself who begins to live through us in all of his fullness to impact a lost and dying world with the hope and the grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you. That's good. I mean, that's exactly what he's praying for. And I'm sitting here going, God, bring it on. I, I want it. Bring, bring everything that, that you possibly can. I want to stay in close proximity with you so that you are constantly filling me with your fullness. But the third thing that I see in this prayer is the confidence in Christ's power. Paul closes with Pastor Scott's two, probably two of his favorite verses in all the scripture. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. There's a sermon series right here that we're not going to get to this morning. But you know what I see in this? I see Paul's confidence in the sovereignty of God. Uh, Paul is saying God is sovereign over all things. He, he, his knowledge is beyond knowing. His, his fullness is, is infinite. 
And, and the sovereignty of God says, I, I have you in the palm of my hand. The sovereignty of God, the word of God tells us that God, Jehovah God, implies the idea that he is the creator, sustainer of the universe. The word of God tells us that God holds the universe, get this, the universe in the very palm of his hand. And if I'm trusting Christ, being full to his fullness, searching the unknowable uh, truth of God's love and his grace, and I know that God has the universe in the palm of his hand, that nothing happens in his universe without his approval, is there a question in my mind that God has me? <laughs> There's not a question in my mind that God is sovereign, that he knew me. As the word of God says, Dave, I knew you even before you were conceived in your mother's womb. All of your days are numbered. I know you. I've got you. And there's not a thing that's going to happen to me today or tomorrow that God is not already aware. There has never been a moment in my life that, that God has come to me and said, whoa, Dave, I'm sorry. I didn't see that one coming. Good or bad. I've had some bad stuff. There's been some difficult situations. God never came to me and said, I didn't see that coming. He simply came to me with all of his love and all of his grace and all of his knowledge and all of his fullness and said, I got you. I got you. I got you today. I got you in this moment. I got you tomorrow. Now listen, church, I want, to, I want to be really careful here because we live in a very fearful world right now. And I think the church has backed off and become fearful when what our world needs is a fearless church. Amen. We need to trust the sovereignty of God who, who says, look, I know exactly what's going on in your world. I know exactly what's going on in your life. I know exactly what's going on in your home. I know exactly what's going on with your business and your job. And I want you to know I got you. I got you. You live confidently in the sovereignty of God and in the confidence of Christ's power. I want to live confidently in the, in the power of Jesus Christ saying, God, I don't know what's coming tomorrow, but I know that you got me. Amen. If I'm walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and I'm walking in close proximity with Jesus, listen to me careful, nothing is going to pull me away. And so he simply says, follow me. He says, I am always in close proximity. And he says, Dave, you're either trusting my authority or you're asking for my help. I want to depend on his authority because he is the sovereign God of the universe and he's got me. He closes with one word. What is it? Amen. Now, I love this. Because right here in the middle, right in the middle of Paul's letter, he gives this beautiful prayer. And he goes, amen. About that time, the church is probably ready to take up an offering and call it a day and go to lunch. But no, he, he's only getting going. But, but I love this word. See, the, the Hebrew rendering of this word where it began literally means truly or truth. It carries with it this solid foundation, much like rooted and grounded. As it moved into the, to the Greek language, the primary use was really firm, firm. So I think one Sunday as Pastor Scott's preaching, we all did firm, man, that's, that's firm. It carries with the idea of truly or truth. And the early church would use it often as an interjection to say, so be it. 
In other words, that is a great word. That is so true. Truly, that is the absolute truth. That is firm, so be it. Whether I feel loved or not doesn't change the truth that God loves me. Amen. So be it. That's truth. Whether I feel like God is good or not doesn't change the fact that God is good. That's firm truth, isn't it? Father, in this place, we pray. And God, we, th- we say thank you. You are firm. <laughs> you are trustworthy. You are truth. You are a solid foundation upon which we build our lives because you are a sovereign God. In all of your holiness, in all of your righteousness, God, you chose to step out of the glory and splendor of heaven to display your grace to us, uh, to put it on display in the person of Jesus so that you could redeem us into intimate relationship. So, Father, I thank you for that truth. I thank you for the power of the words of Apostle Paul that you've given him for us, for this generation, Lord, that we would know the unknowable. God, that we would experience your love in a way that we've never experienced. God, that we would walk in righteousness and holiness, trusting the sovereignty of who you are. You are a great and mighty God. And Father, this morning we say amen.